be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, and our text will be verses 1 through 4. Let's read our text together. In Colossians 3 verse 1, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As a preacher, I understand that each week I am responsible, I am called by God to bring you the truth of Scripture, to read it, to explain it, to apply it, to defend it, to urge you all to receive and believe uh, all that is in the text. But I also am called to sit under my own preaching. I, too, am accountable to the Word of God, and I stand here before you this morning not as someone who has mastered all this, but as someone who needs to hear today what this text has to say. I do hope I'll be a faithful example um, but this text is one that spoke specifically to my heart this week. And this, what, what I just mentioned about myself being accountable to the text, that's true all the time. That's every week. But I think I especially felt that this week. Um, I don't know about you guys. If any of you have basements, we got a lot of rain uh, this past week. And on Wednesday, our basement flooded. It came all the way in through my office. And so that was kind of a hassle this week, for me, meant a lot of cleaning up and moving stuff around and culminated yesterday in installing a sump pump and a new water heater because the water heater goes out at the same time that other things happen. That's just how life typically works. If you own a home, you know how that, how that works. Um, and I was really thankful. My wife's family came out uh, and helped quite a bit with that, and Fernando came out and helped me with some electrical, and now he's really embarrassed. But um, anyway, this week has been kind of a crazy week uh, for me and my family. And amidst rainwater and jackhammering out concrete and buying water heaters, I'm supposed to study this text. Set your mind on things above. Keep seeking the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. And I needed this text this week. And I don't know about you, but perhaps your week was similar. Maybe it didn't have to do with sump pumps, but maybe this week for you brought relational drama. Nobody enjoys that. Maybe it brought financial pressures. Maybe you're dealing with a job that is exhausting. Perhaps you're dealing with the slow grind of unwanted circumstances of some sort. Maybe you're dealing with the looming threat of uncertainties, fears, concerns, worries about tomorrow and next week and next year and what that might hold for you. Today, God speaks to us through his word and says, hey, listen, turn your heart to what matters most. Fix your thoughts on Christ. The reality is there are a lot of things that can vie for our attention, a lot of things in this world that compete for our focus and our energies. But today, God speaks to us through his word and says, set your mind on things above. Seek the things that are above. So will you pray with me before we jump into our text that God will use his word to change our hearts, to refocus our hearts, to reestablish the right priorities in our hearts that we would hold Christ up as supreme. Let's pray together. God, as I read your word this morning, I'm convicted, I am humbled, 
and I confess, confess my need to hear the truth of your word. And Lord, I'm sure that many here today are in the same boat as me. We need to hear your truth. We need to have it clarify our thinking. We need our minds to be renewed. We need our hearts to be redirected. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you look back in chapter 2, you'll hear Paul's central charge to the Colossian church. In verse 6, he tells us, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is Paul's concern that these people who believed and they started off great, His concern is that they would keep believing in Christ, that they would keep depending on Christ, that they would grow in Christ and follow Christ, that they would not be pulled off course in any direction. And so in chapter 2, he warns us of several different problems and threats. He warns us not to be taken captive by false teaching, not to be deceived by bad arguments that would rob us of the freedom and the joy that should be ours in Christ. So that's sort of the negative side. Hey, listen, if you're going to walk in Christ, if you're going to do this thing that I know God wants you to do, it's going to require, in a negative sense, you avoid all of these pitfalls. But now in chapter 3, we get, he gives us the positive side of what it will take in order for us to live a life that continues to depend on Christ, a life that continues in faithfulness to Christ. And Paul's advice here to us is very practical. He tells us what we must do each and every day. He's told us what we must believe for most of this book. We've been talking a lot about doctrine and theology, but now he tells us practically what we must do. But this advice is still highly theological. As even I read it earlier, you probably noticed that even in this, these short few verses, Christ is mentioned four times. His advice practically on what we must do, is rooted in the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of this whole letter, who Jesus is, his glory, his preeminence. Paul's counsel to us is also gospel-rich counsel. Our responsibility to do is firmly rooted in what Christ has done. Paul understands, and so should we, that our union with Christ When we trust in Christ and place our faith in Christ, it says we are in Christ and he dwells in us. We have this spiritual union with Christ. Paul says this is a glorious reality that has life-changing, life-altering, life-dominating implications. Namely this, that Christ is to be the supreme focus of our lives. That Christ must be the supreme focus of our lives. Of our lives. That's his point here, and this shows up in three ways. It's going to show up in a Christ-centered pursuit, in a Christ-centered perspective, and then finally in a Christ-centered expectation. So if you're taking notes and want to get to your nap, now you've got it. You can fill that out. No, I, I hope you'll stay with me as we walk through this. But that's basically the breakdown of the sermon this morning and the text, that Christ must be the supreme focus of our lives, and we see that in a Christ-centered pursuit, a Christ-centered perspective, and a Christ-centered expectation. As we read Paul's exhortation to the Colossians, something that they needed to hear 2,000 years ago, we discover God's will for us today, how you and I must approach each and every day of our lives as we seek to follow Christ and honor him. So verse 1, 
Verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The first point this morning is that union with Christ brings a new priority, a Christ-centered pursuit, a Christ-centered pursuit. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. And notice that this starts with this little word, if. Paul wants us to reason with him. He's asking you to think, to join him in thinking, to consider this reality and the implications of this reality so that if this is true of you, if you have been raised with Christ, then there is a kind of living that, that follows from that, that is in accordance with what is real and what is true. This if statement has the logical force of since. So if you say, yes, I've been raised with Christ, I trust in him, and I've been born again, then you could read this, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. What Paul suggests here is indeed true for all who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This concept of being raised with Christ is something we see in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul told us there, he says, in him, in Christ, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking here about a spiritual heart surgery. He says, by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. It is through faith that we share in Christ's death, which is the key to us being set free from our sin, the old me, the sinful me being put to death and nailed in a cross and buried in a grave. And it is through union with Christ that I am raised with him. Verse 13, he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's referring to our spiritual condition apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead. He says, you, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So when Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, what you should hear him saying is, if you have union with Christ through faith, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, if you believe in him, if you have been saved, if you have been born again, if you are spiritually alive because of what Jesus has done, then set your, no, that's the next verse, then seek the things that are above. Although verse two goes with this as well. But he says, set or seek the things that are above. So this is true. This condition of being raised with Christ is true for all who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. What Paul's talking here is not about our future physical resurrection, although that is true. That is coming for those who believe in Christ. But he says that we are raised with Christ, present tense. So he's speaking of our current spiritual state, that we've been regenerated. This new quality of life that springs up within us when God makes us alive. You see, there's two kinds of people in the world. Perhaps even two kinds of people in this room this morning. Those who are still spiritually dead in their sin, and those who have been made alive, those who have experienced this divine miracle of grace, God has literally turned the lights on and made you alive within. These are the people that Paul is speaking to this morning, 
those who have experienced this. He says, your union with Christ, your life in Christ, is the basis for this command. It goes hand in hand with it. If you've experienced this, then comes the exhortation. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. The logic here is really parallel to what we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 20. Remember back there, back there in verse 20, a similar statement. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you are still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says, listen, if you died to the things of the world, then it's unnecessary to submit to those things. Verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Do you see that? If you're dead to the world, don't submit to those things. If you're alive in Christ, seek the things that are above. These things are parallel. They go hand in hand. This exhortation here to seek the things that are above is a present active verb. You could really translate it, keep seeking the things that are above. It indicates an ongoing action. The sense here is that we are to persistently, stubbornly, despite the passing of time, despite the emergence of adversity, keep seeking the things that are above. Maybe some of you remember the time where you experienced that change in the heart, where God made you alive, and you experienced this radically different joy this excitement, this hunger for the things of God. Sadly, for some, this kind of new excitement, this fire can tend to wear off over time. And it's not necessarily wrong that we become comfortable and settled in our faith and that is familiar instead of new. But it is wrong if we ever stop pursuing Christ and stop seeking him. Even if you've been a believer for 50 years, Paul challenges you this morning. God says to you, keep seeking the things that are above. Don't ever become complacent and apathetic and rest on your laurels. The reality is that we all seek something. Every one of us in here this morning is after something. There's something that you see as important. There is something that you believe to be valuable. There is something that you perceive to be desirable. There's something that you think is worth working for, worth sacrificing for, worth waiting for, worth living for. What do you seek? What are you after? What is your highest priority in life? If you've been raised with Christ, then Scripture commands us to seek the things above primarily and persistently. It is our highest Priority. There are many things that we have to go after. I had to go after a sump pump at Home Depot this last week. But the highest priority, the thing that really occupies the central position in our heart, must be Christ, the things that are above. So what technically are these things that are above? Because he says, seek the things that are above. So what are they? What does that mean? Well, again, here we have a contrast with the things that are on the earth, like we saw in chapter 2. So this is really kind of a shorthand for heaven. Specifically, Paul says, we seek the things that are above, and the next phrase explains it, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's locating our focus squarely in the throne room of heaven, where the glorious resurrected Christ, who has ascended and been seated on the throne where he dwells. That is the focus. That is what we are to seek. When Paul declares that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, 
Keep in mind here that he's dealing with some theological error in Colossae, these people who were worshiping angels. And they were saying Jesus is one of many divine powers. So Paul sort of defiantly refutes them and says, listen, do not diminish the person of Christ. He is not one of many heavenly powers. He's the one who's seated on the throne at the right hand of God. That is a significant thing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, referring to the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The, the enthronement of Christ in heaven shows that his work of atonement and salvation is finished. He sat down because the job is done. But it also shows that God has highly exalted him, as Paul says in Philippians 2, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord, that he is the Lord. The right hand of God was the sign of highest honor and power. To be seated at God's right hand is nothing less than God's full and complete endorsement and authorization of the supremacy of his son, Jesus Christ. He's not just Paul's Lord. He's not just our Lord. He is the Lord, whether or not anyone recognizes him as such or not. But the reason that this criticism of the false teachers, um, or, or Paul's criticism of the false teachers, they, those who were saying that Jesus is not that great, the reason it's so convincing is that Paul's not just making up a new idea here. He's actually referring back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1 is probably the most often quoted or echoed verse in the New Testament uh, from the Old Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1, David writes, The Lord said to my Lord... So you have God the Father speaking here to David's descendant, the Messiah, whom David recognizes to be his superior. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, this is a promise that the Messiah would reign in glory forever. Christ's enthronement now is glorious and supreme, but a time is coming in which this throne and this kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven. Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There is a time coming in which the glory and reign of Christ will be established here. This is kingdom language. Paul's point is that we seek that which has value in the kingdom of God. When we seek the things above, we're seeking Christ's kingdom and the things that matter in his kingdom and the reward that will come in his kingdom because the current reign of Christ will one day be manifested in power here when all his enemies are subdued and his rule is brought to bear in all the earth at his return. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To seek the things above is the only right response to the reality of our new life. We are no longer identified with and belong to this world, but we belong to that kingdom. We belong to the city that is to come. We're no longer enslaved to sin and death. We're subjects of King Jesus, the one who sits at the right hand of God. So his purposes and his priorities become our purposes and our priorities. We are to seek the priorities of heaven 
What Christ values, we value. What Christ is working toward, we are called to work toward. We are to seek the eternal heavenly reward. Our hope is not in what can be gained in this world, but what will be received in the age to come. In Philippians 3.14, Paul says it this way, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is not just telling us to do something that he himself is not actively engaged in. He is seeking the things that are above. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where basements leak and mold grows. Maybe that's just my version. No, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, don't let your heart be consumed with the things of this world, things that break down. Things that rot and decay. Things that can be lost. Your heart is to pursue and to be consumed with the things that are eternal. The things that cannot be lost. The things that cannot be stolen. The things that cannot decay. Hebrews chapter 11 records for us the faithful saints of old who lived with this perspective. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So the world would look at them and say, wow, you guys really lived for something and never even got to see the reward. But the author of Hebrews tells us they did not receive these things, but they have seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Noah, Abraham, Moses, they were seeking the things above. The kingdom that was to come, the heavenly city. To to seek the things above means that we seek the reward that is to come. We seek the priorities and purposes of our king. But most importantly, it means we pursue the person who is at the center of that scene in heaven, Christ himself. I love Psalm 27, verse 4. The psalmist writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to seek the things above. The bottom line means ultimately that we're seeking the person of Jesus Christ, to know him, to delight in him. That is our aim. Anything less than a life that is consumed with Christ and his purposes and his promises treats Jesus as insignificant. And it treats the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Christ as inconsequential. I'll say that again because nobody said amen and maybe we're all sleepy here this morning. You don't have to say amen, but I do want to say this again. Anything less than a life consumed with Christ and his purposes and his promises treats Jesus as insignificant and treats the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Christ as inconsequential. 
And it is because of that that you and I must keep seeking the things that are above. Our union with Christ brings us a new priority, a Christ-centered pursuit. He is our aim in all of life, in all of life. But there's a second command. Paul gives us this in verse 2. He keeps going. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So the second point this morning is that union with Christ, if we've been raised with him, we have union with him. Union with Christ calls for a new mindset, a new mindset, a Christ-centered perspective. This has to do with our thinking. How many of you guys have ever been on a, like a float trip, a canoe trip, where you've gone down the river, maybe in Missouri or Arkansas somewhere? Several of you guys have done that. I've gone on several of those trips, and most of them have been with church groups, which is fun. You're getting to hang out with people that, you know, your, your church family. But a lot of times, people on those groups have never canoed before, which makes it very entertaining. Um, my typical approach is I always like to be the last one on the water because then I get to watch everything out in front of me and kind of take it all in. But it's kind of funny because if you've never um, paddled a canoe before, it can be kind of difficult to keep that thing pointed in the right direction. And so if you're in the last canoe, and you're with the youth group from your church, as you look down the river, what you see is all these canoes pointed almost every direction except straight down the middle. And they're crashing into trees and rocks, and everybody's dumping out in your fishing coolers and flip-flops out of the water. And that's funny when you're canoeing, but it's not funny in life. It's not funny when, in a spiritual sense, we as Christians go through life aimed in all these different directions except the right one. This happens because we lack direction and are pointed all over the place. And the reality is this. In order to to be seeking the things above, you have to set your focus on the things above. It requires that we think differently. While seeking the things above is an action, Paul tells us that this activity must not be carried out mindlessly. We don't want to just go through the motions of the Christian life. We need to think. We need to look. We need to focus on the things that are above. Set your minds, Paul says, on the things that are above. So if, if seeking the things that are above has to do with our desires and our efforts and the things we're doing, our energies, this has to do with how we think. It has to do with how we think. It takes a settled mindset, a disciplined thought process in order to sustain this ongoing pursuit of the things above. Our minds must be fixed on Christ. Again, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is the mindset that we need. Minds that are fixed on Christ. Set your minds on things that are above. This kind of focus is the product of actively setting our mind on things above. So you can let a canoe go where it wants. You can allow the current to take you in different directions. Or you can allow your mind to wander where it pleases. You can allow your thoughts to be pulled by the various currents of life, whether it be your own desires and the things that interest you, your own emotions, your own fears, your own circumstances, or your mind can easily be gripped and pulled offline by the countless voices that cry out to us 
through your radio or your TV or your phone, your computer. Or you can determine to set your thoughts on what matters to set your compass at due north, and to discipline your mind to think on the things that are eternal. Curtis Vaughn, commenting on this text, writes, to make earthly things the goal of life and the subject of preoccupation is unworthy of those who've been raised with Christ and look forward to sharing in his eternal glory. So how do we do this? How do we set our mind on things above? Let's say that you and I want to obey this command. Practically, what does this mean? Um, I think very simply, and at the risk of sounding elementary, I want to encourage you to read your Bibles. This is a basic discipline that every day should be a part of our lives. If we are those who are going to set our mind on things above, one way to do that, the best way to do that, is to literally read the things that God wants us to think about. To saturate our minds with truths until our thinking is changed and aimed in the right direction. And our hearts are properly oriented towards God and the things that matter. Because I don't roll out of bed automatically thinking about and caring about the things of God. I need recalibration. I need help to clear the windshield and focus me on the right things. And that is what scripture does. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What is meditation? It's setting your mind on a specific thing chewing on it, mulling over it again and again. My dad always described this like a cow that chews something and then brings it up later and chews on it some more because they've got several different stomachs going on there. That is a fitting description of what it means to meditate, to set our mind on the things that are above, to, to leave a sermon at church like this and consider those things even after we say amen and go home and eat lunch, to on a Tuesday night, be reading and studying and discussing the things that you're going to talk about with your small group. To be getting up on Friday morning and opening God's word before your feet hit the ground and hit the day running so that you can set your mind on the things that have eternal value. Romans 12 verse 2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is what happens when we immerse ourselves in the truth of Scripture. I won't embarrass you this morning, but how many of you Christians fail to regularly read your Bible? This is not some checklist that we, well, if I do this today, then I'm a good person. If I do this, then God will love me more. No, this is a practical act of obedience where we are seeking to set our mind on the things above, not so that God will accept us, but because God has accepted us. If you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. He doesn't say set your mind on things above so that you can be raised with Christ. That puts the cart before the horse. That says if you obey and if you seek the right things and think the right things, then God will accept you. No, Paul is saying you have been accepted by God. So love him and seek him. Seek to know him and understand his will and his word. So our guide is scripture. Our aim is renewal. And again, Paul doesn't just preach this. He models it. I read earlier from Philippians 3. I'd like to read more of it now. Paul writes in Philippians 3.13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's saying I haven't made it there yet. I'm not, 
I haven't arrived. I know I'm still a work in progress. He continues, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's seeking the things above. Verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think in this way. So there's the seeking and the thinking. They go hand in hand, and Paul models that for us. So let me ask you, what is your focus? What do you spend your time thinking about? What preoccupies your imagination? What do you meditate on? Do you meditate on what that person said and what they meant by it three days ago? Do you meditate on um, the bottom line in your bank account and how you're going to make ends meet? Do you meditate on how well your investments are doing and what you're going to spend all that money on when you cash out? And what do you meditate on? What is the focus of your thoughts? Do you meditate on what's going on out there in the world of politics? All the problems and the craziness? I mean, it is a circus, and you don't even have to buy a ticket to watch it. Do you meditate on what's going on in the world of entertainment? Who divorced who or what royal person in England is doing what? What do you focus on? What is the meditation of your heart? Philippians 4 says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you may think that being a Christian has to do with just like, well, don't do these really bad sins and make sure you, you know, go to church and put some money in and be a good person. But that is not even close to the totality of what God calls us to. God changes our hearts and he transforms our lives from the inside out. And he cares a lot more than just about what you do on the outside. God cares about what you think about. God cares about your thoughts and your priorities and your desires. And Paul says, if you have been given everything in Christ, eternal life, resurrection, future hope of glory, then set your mind on things that are above and seek those things. So why is this kind of thinking so important? We've already kind of talked about it some, but Paul gives us the explicit reason in verses three through four. And he gives us motivation, motivation for thinking and pursuing the things above. Here we find the key to sustaining a Christ-centered focus, and that is hope. That is hope. So the final point this morning we find in verses 3 and 4, and it's this. Union with Christ produces hope. It is a Christ-centered expectation. Verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. What energizes Paul's seeking, what focuses Paul's thinking, is the reality of what is to come. A Christ-centered expectation. A hope that is now hidden, but will soon be revealed. And this means glory for Christ and glory for for us. In verse 3, he talks about our union with Christ and our current situation. He says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is what is true right now of us. Paul says what happened at the cross was more consequential for who we are and where we stand than anything else in the world. It has changed everything for us. He says, you died. 
Imagine a dating couple who's going out to dinner. And imagine that the girl finds out that her boyfriend has been leading a secret life. He's been dating other people. And so she stands up and throws her beverage in the guy's face. And he says, you're dead to me. You are dead to me. What does she mean by that? What she means is that she's moving on as if he no longer exists. She will not reply to his attempts to communicate. She will hear none of his explanations or apologies. She is completely done with him. You're dead to me. When Paul says that we have died, we are dead to the world. There has been a firm break. He's reminding us that we're dead to sin, dead to the things of earth, that this place is no longer our home. This is not where we ultimately belong. And this world no longer should have any appeal to us or power over us because we don't belong here. He says, you have died. So to seek the things of earth, he says, that's a contradiction for someone who has died with Christ. And he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the new reality, dead to the world, now alive in Christ. This is why Paul will say elsewhere, for me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. He says in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Just like Jesus taught, he is the vine and we are the branches. He is our life. And Paul says our lives are hidden with Christ in God. What does this word hidden mean? What does it mean that our lives are hidden with Christ? Because we can read this, but stop and think about that for just a minute. Well, I don't think this is the same as how you might, if you're a parent, hide the evidence of Oreos from your kids by tucking the wrapper underneath other trash in the trash can. Any of your parents ever done something like that? I have. Okay. But that's not what it means here when he says your life is hidden with God. It doesn't mean that our lives are being hidden trying to keep someone from seeing it or or trying to deceive anyone. This is more like how you would hide presents from your kids somewhere in November or December so that they are stored safe and sound and secure until the right time when they will be brought out and opened up and enjoyed by everyone. Paul says that your life, our life is hidden with Christ in God. But then notice verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What is now hidden will one day be revealed. What now you cannot see will one day appear. We seek the things above. We set our minds on things above. Because our ultimate life and glory is not here in this world. It is coming. And it is secure as Christ's position on the throne is secure. And it is as sure as the promise of his return is sure. We have this hope in verse 4 we see of future glory. There is a day coming when all that we seek, all that we hope for, all that we have waited for will one day be experienced. This life that is now hidden in Christ will one day be revealed and it will be like Christmas morning. When everything is unwrapped and enjoyed. The first and foremost aspect of this future is the revealing of Christ. We see this in verse 4, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him. He's saying, listen, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it is going to be marked by glory. Revelation 19, verse 11. We often think of Jesus, maybe like the, some of the, the Catholic paintings or statues you've seen, you know, with the soft expression and the, and the pretty hair. That's not what we find in Revelation 19. Revelation 19.11 speaks of Christ's return, his appearance. 
John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you imagine that? That's what's going to happen. Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, we too will appear with him in glory. When Jesus Christ returns, he will be fully revealed in all his glory, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess he is Lord. But the return of Christ also means something for us. It means we will be changed, and we will be changed to be like Christ. So it will be right to say that we will also be appearing in a sense. Something about us will be revealed. That right now you cannot see. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is really the final step of our salvation, isn't it? This is the step of glorification. So, So we have all these different steps of what God has done to save us. We find this in Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the last step in what God is doing to make us who he always intended us to be. And that is just like his son Jesus Christ. And it is going to mean not just a change for us to be glorified, resurrected bodies like Jesus, but it is also going to bring reward for our faithfulness in this life. In 1 Peter 5, 4, it says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's encouraging, isn't it? To know that when Christ appears, it's going to bring change for us, glory for us, and even reward for us. Paul had this perspective in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the hope, friends, that can energize us as we seek to resist all the distractions of the world, all the temptations, the things that compete for our focus and our attention and our preoccupation, to know that there is a reward coming. This is hope. This is hope. This even sustains us through suffering. In 1 Peter 4.13, it says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We know that one day, the end of our labors is coming, and a new day will dawn in which Christ 
will be revealed in all his glory. And our destiny is linked with his. Our future is bound up with the one who is our life. So Paul says, listen, we have this hope. We have this confidence. We have this expectation. And it is all centered on Christ, his appearing and his reward. So let me encourage you this morning, keep seeking, reject the distractions and the deceptions because Christ is supreme and therefore he must be our supreme pursuit. This has to be a resolved priority for us that we obey this command to persistently, continually seek Christ and set our thoughts on the things above. But I want to encourage you this morning again that this responsibility is ultimately a response to God's grace. Did you notice as we were reading this text that being raised with Christ is a passive idea? It's not something we accomplish. That is something done for us, something done in us, in a remarkable display of grace. We seek not so that we can be raised with Christ, but because we are raised with Christ. So I want to ask you this morning, have you been raised with Christ? Do you have union with Jesus Christ through faith? Are you trusting in his death and resurrection alone as your hope of salvation? Or are you trying to do enough and be good enough and jump through all the hoops in order to somehow earn that reward? Friends, the only way to experience this future expectation of hope with Christ is if you are raised with him by the power of God. If he is your life through divine mercy, you won't be able to get your focus right until God makes you right. Until God changes your heart, you will have no hope of living this way. So don't try. It's a fool's errand. It's literally impossible. Unless you've been born again, you cannot live this kind of life. But if you have been born again, then you must live this kind of life. Because of our glorious union with Christ, he must be our focus, our aim, our motivation, our goal, and our reward. And let me encourage you with this. When Christ becomes central, when he's your central pursuit, when when your mindset is centered on him, when all your hopes and expectations are centered on him, when he consumes your vision and outshines and surpasses all else, then you will live a life that's tethered to eternity that is full of joy. And that is full of hope, full of confidence in Christ. So I hope that you will listen to Paul's counsel, his exhortations today. And join me in seeking to pursue this on a daily basis. Because it's a battle, isn't it? Every day, every week, there's something that is threatening to take our gaze off of Christ. But if we know him, then let's make him supreme in our hearts, in our minds. God, as we read your word, it is convicting Because there's so many times where we run after other things and we're more focused on other things than on Jesus and on the things that matter for eternity. I pray that you'd forgive us for getting so wrapped up in things that rust, things that can be stolen and lost, things that don't last for eternity. I pray, God, that you would help each of us this morning to remember our union with Christ and to live in accordance with who we are. We are children of God who one day will be made like Jesus and will be experiencing your glory. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live now in a way that shows we are hoping for what will happen then. And God, if there's those among us this morning who do not know you and do not have this hope, who have not been raised with Christ through faith, 
I pray that today they would stop trusting in their efforts, stop trusting in their good deeds, stop trying to be good enough. I pray that today they would trust fully and only in Jesus alone and rest in him and allow him to make them new. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.